Hey. Hello. What's up? I'm Ashley. And I'm Tania. You're listening to another episode of Hugh I Do, the podcast that's going to take you through what it was like to be a Black wife through the last 100 plus years. So this was actually a good episode. It was another historical episode for y'all. I think that you all will enjoy this episode. We learn a little bit more about the history of the Black wife. And I think that the information that you'll learn will definitely open your eyes to how far we've come as a community. I agree. There's so much we couldn't cover in this episode, but there's still so much that I know we both learn, so I'm pretty sure that all of you will enjoy listening. We have a very special guest with us today. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Dr. Tara Green, and I am professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at the University of Houston. Awesome. We are so excited to talk to you because this is a topic that we've actually been kind of discussing off and on, just uh, Tania and I amongst ourselves. And earlier in the year, we had an episode or a few kind of more historical-based episodes that our listeners are really, really like we're fond of and you know we kind of felt like okay we we need to give we need to give the folks some more some more education some more history here from time to time so um we're really excited to talk to you about kind of the evolution of the black wife but can you tell us a little bit about yourself like how long have you been at the university of houston i've been teaching for 25 or 26 years now at some point i think i stopped um, thinking about it, but um, so for the most part, I've taught at several universities, and I have been publishing on Black women, and okay. more recently on Alice Dunbar Nelson. Yes, you definitely you have a book as well about Alice Dunbar Nelson, right? Yes, she was born in New Orleans in 1875, and she died in Philadelphia in 1935, and she was married three times. So if if we could bring anybody back from the dead to have on your show, she would be the best (laughs) guest. Right, right. Like, this is what I did. (laughs) Don't do this or (laughs) do it this way instead. Um, Again, we're excited to have you. We're just going to go straight into our favorite icebreaker, which is a game of this or that, which we play every week with our guests where you select between one option or the other and you tell us why. And because you're our guest, we'll allow you to start. Um, And first, we'll go with having five kids or having two kids. (laughs) I guess having two. (laughs) Okay. I would also say two. Okay, we're all on the same page. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I cannot imagine. I mean, now at my age, to push out five, so definitely two. (laughs) Okay, same. All right, so would you prefer to work as a secretary or work... Let's go back. So this is 
like 60 years ago? Would you prefer to work as a secretary at a doctor's office or prefer to work at a nurse at a local hospital? <laughs> Difficult to say. I'm the daughter of a woman who went to secretary school. So um, I obviously have a lot of respect for secretary. So I would say that, but for women in any field working outside of the home, it was extremely difficult to have many challenges. It's, it's difficult, but in honor of my mother, I would say secretary. Okay. What about you, Tania? Wow. This is this is hard. So hard. Um, yeah, this is really, really hard, especially because I am a nurse. And so, um, I mean, I think I would say a nurse, you know, things have changed over the years. Um, but my mom is also a nurse and she's always said that, you know, like back when she was a baby nurse, air quote, a baby nurse, um, she enjoyed those times. And so I would say a nurse. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am with Dr. Green. I'm going to be a secretary. <laughs> I, I don't have the science or the, I don't want to see the blood or the the vomit or the things, mm-hmm. all of the things. That's, that's not me. Okay. <laughs> Would you, just thinking historically and just the time and the climate and how things were, from what you know, and you know a lot, would you prefer to be a wife in the 1970s or a wife in the 1930s? Oh, I'd certainly say the 70s. I would definitely say the same. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think we're all on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are all on the same page. I think of, um, like, my grandma, like, first getting, or, like, around the time I, well, my great-grandma, like, how her like coming up versus my grandma coming up and being kind of you know in their 20s and 30s in those different time frames so yeah definitely 1970s all right final round would you prefer to stay together for the kids or get a divorce divorce what about you <laughs> I deserve to be happy and so <laughs> I would also right. get a divorce I definitely would <laughs> definitely would as well um i think this has been one of the rare times Mm -hmm. that for the most part we've all been on pretty much the same accord for these questions um but again yeah we're really excited to have you on we know there's a lot of meat and a lot of history here so um as much information as you can give us with the time we have we are completely grateful um so tania you kick it off Briefly describe black wives based on generation. Um, so like the greatest gen, the silent gen, the baby boomers, Gen X. Yeah. So if you can explain the evolution of the black wife. Yeah, well, um, I guess in some ways we have to think about how we are defining wife. Are we talking about a status that is a legal status? Or are we talking about a status that is one that may only be recognized and honored by the people in the relationship. And so, you know, I'm just gonna give a little bit of a shout out to Tara Hunter for, she's a historian for the work that she has done on the history of marriage amongst black folks, including during slavery and um, that era and what that looked like and what that entailed. But moving forward then, the greatest generation is the generation that was born between 1900 and 1920. um, That generation would be 
coming out of well it's the beginning of the 20th century and so we know that they still have the impact and the influences of enslavement because the country is still trying to figure itself out so certainly they are in the 1900s but we begin to see an emerging educated class of black people so this is when we begin to see sort of splitting off based on education because there are schools that have been open for black folks to become professionals as as um, medical professionals or teachers sometimes lawyers as well so and that includes women um, between 1928 and 1945, we have that next generation, the silent one. And, you know, if we think about the Harlem Renaissance or the Jazz Age, they're born during that time. That's also a time where we begin to see that middle class emerge more so because we also begin to see people moving out of the rural south to the north. And so that first major wave of black movement from the south to the north and to the west begins to happen. So again, that means that black women are leaving the south and going to college or getting different kinds of jobs in some instances. We have, of course, the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. That's the time in which they are born. And so then that's the age of, we have earlier, we have World War One. now we have World War Two, And so then there are opportunities that are opening up in factories, for example, <clears throat> because men are going off to war. And so while there are black women, while there are white women who are going into some of those areas, there are black women who are doing that work also. But then, of course, we have Gen X, my generation, born between, um, some people debate about this, whether it's 1965 or 1970, but certainly the 70s are when this generation begins to emerge. And they then are the grandchildren of that first generation. And you see more people who are going to college and more opportunities opening up for black women that expand beyond what their grandparents may have had available to them or, or black women's um, grandmothers may have had to them. Wow, I love that breakdown. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so now people are aware of, you know, like the terminology basically. And kind of like what the climate was for each of those as well. Because I think sometimes mm -hmm. when we think about the past we don't really consider all of the things that were going on at the time but then also the fact that they were the product of things that occurred decades before them so that was a mm -hmm. that was a really great way of framing that um so when it, i doing some research you know had this um i looked up an article from the washington post from like 1998 and it mentioned how in 1910, the government reported that the majority of black women worked outside the home, while the majority of white women only passed that milestone in the last 20 years. So around that time, it would have been like the 60s, the end of the 60s. Um, can you speak to kind of the history of what work looked like for black women at the time? Because I'll, I even remember when we had, um, when we were talking, I think about postbellum life 
earlier in Feb- in February, I never realized that black women had been working this whole time because, you know, what we were taught in school was that women didn't start working until the war or afterwards to kind of help. But that was really about white women. <laughs> black women were working this whole time. So can you kind of go back there and kind of speak to, you know, basically a century of black women working? Yeah, well, we do always have to remember that the history of the majority of black women will be different than the history of white women because of citizenship, because of, you know, earlier on, black women were not considered to be citizens. You can't be citizen and property at the same time. And just to keep in mind, there is a diverse Mm -hmm. black history But usually when I speak, I speak as a black woman from the South who is a descendant of enslaved people. Now, there are black people that have the rare history that they um, were not enslaved for as long as some for a variety of reasons. But I am going to talk a little bit more about the majority and those people who are descended of people who were not free, probably not until 1865 because of the 13th Amendment. And so when we look at black women's labor, black women were brought here to work. Black women were never seen as people who would not contribute through the use of their bodies, either as producing other workers or as um, those who may have been working in fields or working in homes. And so that ideal would certainly continue even after 1865. And so then it becomes really important to consider the dream, the vision, the looking forward of those people of the early 1900s because when those colleges began to become established then you could get people who would become educators either at the college level or especially teachers they might become nurses and again i'm speaking specifically about women they were looked upon as being those individuals who would join with good men who were working hard or who may have been getting an education and striving so that the black family could emerge. And so it's it's really important to think about how in the early 20th century, there was an emphasis on the black family, that that would be the history, man, woman, children, man, woman, children. Now we've begun to unpack that, unravel it, and look at it in different ways, but that is always the sort of traditional way of thinking about the viability of Black people as we move forward. And so Black women's contribution as um, workers also may have been challenged by the idea that in the middle class, that they needed to be at home with those kids once they got married. So that was always a challenge. Again, never knew. So speaking about the challenges that, you know, the Black family just in general, I guess when we think about our grandparents and also our great-great-great-grandparents, we think about, you know, how many kids they had. Like, I know that 
both my parents, their parents both probably had six or seven on each side. So, you know, like a lot of them had a lot of kids. And so like, what were those relationships like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's difficult to know because it depends. So I wonder that about my own grandparents, for example, and what that relationship was. They were born um, in that, mm-hmm. that greatest generation in the early 1900s. And it was just not necessarily a thing that you talked about on my father's side of the family. I can remember hearing the story of my grandfather going to ask for the sister of my grandmother (laughs) and was denied the request and, and walked off with my grandmother. And she had 13 children. She was a teenager when she married him. He was older. This is in rural Mississippi. And so it was not unusual, and my family's a um, great example of that. My grandmother had, on my mother's side, had nine children. And so in these rural areas, it was not unusual for people to have large families, even though they they couldn't afford them. But this thing that we now call planning, family planning, you know, there's even a section of it in CBS or something like that. Uh, this delicate way, these people didn't necessarily get the opportunity to plan because what access would they have had to birth control um, that would have been less reliable during that time. But I do remember my grandmother saying that my grandfather wanted all of these children even though she did not. So what were her choices? So let's say that they chose one another because they loved one another. And there was there was romance in those earlier days. That's fine. But then we also consider the challenges of being married. And there are many love stories of people who chose each other because they loved each other, even during slavery. So we have those. I've I've heard the generation, um, my maybe more my parents generation. I've heard some beautiful love stories. Of course, these people are are now passing on, but I wish that we would have done more work to preserve the courting if there was. You know, I heard a story from some folks that had known each other for a month and they married and they were, they had grandchildren and they had been married for over 60 years. Wow. At the time of his death last year. And so, you know, we have these beautiful wow. stories within our, within our communities that we haven't done the work to preserve, but they are there. And others are, are, were married because of convenience. That's interesting that you made the point um, where you said that your grandmother didn't want all the kids. But I also like that because I think sometimes our grandparents' relationships or like great-grandparents' relationships are romanticized. Because they see, oh, they were together for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, or they had so many kids. So you're automatically assuming that parts of the elements of romance and courtship that we have today existed back then. And like you were saying, there's a convenience Mm -hmm. portion of that. And then also, I think you hit a certain age it's kind of expected that, you know, that person you're dating or the nice guy down the street, you're going to likely marry him. He's single. Y'all are pretty compatible or pretty, you know, grew up in a similar Mm -hmm. 
in a similar manner, why wouldn't y'all start a family together? Whereas now, you know, it's all of the things. <laughs> um, and sometimes not even all of that, just to, you know, have kids. But there is this kind of romanticize the notebook kind of version of what people see the past is like. And it's like, eh, not all the time. But speaking of all those grandkids and all those or all those children that they were having, when the FDA approved birth control, how did that impact black families and black women? Like, was that something they were open to? Was that something they were just kind of like, no, that's for white folks. You know, like, how were they... What were their sentiments around it? Mm. Again, it's difficult to know because of the lack of studies of Black women and giving Black women voice in these kinds of um, questions. We have more data now, but um, just looking back historically, so, so then we're talking about the 1960s. When this drug becomes available, it's not necessarily available to black people, first of all. And secondly, there's the question of what's the point to it? So when there's been a history of weeding out people um, and not wanting them to be born because they're thought of as as being a burden on society rather than being um, just giving people a chance you don't know how they're going to show how they're how they're going to end up right but we know that there's a history when it comes to birth of black women having certain choices about um giving birth and going in for help and finding out much later that they've been sterilized and so on and so then there's an early history of this so when this birth control comes along there are some questions. And one of those questions is who should have it? Why should they have it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Who should it be made available to and why? So that question had to do with class. Should poor people have it? And if poor people have it, why? Is it to keep other poor people from having it? Should you get it to people who are thought of as being mentally Um, deficient in some way Um, should you give it to prostitutes or or women who are thought of as being prostitutes because they just don't look right and so all of these questions are swirling around historically about various forms of birth control which could be um, people performing certain um, kinds of procedures to keep women from having children without their consent but certainly this comes up when birth control hits the market so it's not something that black people necessarily have that black women necessarily have access to so think about the rules Jim Crow South black women ain't got access to birth control um But then there's also the question of what is this going to do to our bodies, especially in the long run, even if it is made available in urban areas, for example. So there, it depends on where, um, and it depends on who. Makes a lot of sense. And I mean, even just thinking now, contextually with the most recent 
vaccines or, you know, things that come out and, you know, the fact that there is hesitancy from the black community because it's like Tuskegee, you know, and just thinking of like now was the thing that people recall where there's still that, I don't quite trust this because in the past when the government has given, (laughs) given us something, it has not been in our benefit. Mm -hmm. So completely understand that. Um, Let's switch now to discussing black women and their sexuality because over time and definitely now we see women are so much more comfortable in talking about sex and talking about their, you know, experiences to pleasure and, you know, all of the things they are fine with discussing this, but these aren't necessarily conversations that people are having, like our parents would have had with their parents or shoot, I'm not sure to and I would have these conversations with like our moms. So, you know, um, when did black women start to own their sexuality more and what was kind of the the reason behind that yeah again i think that that depends on the woman and whether or not the win has been achieved the w-h-e-n has been achieved right so um the question kind of presumes that it has been but i think that we are still in process so what we may see and pop culture and what people are singing may not necessarily be the conversations that people are having with other family members or even with their best friend for goodness sakes because there's always been a kind of silence and shame around sex for black women that has always been there and so even going back and thinking about the question that you asked earlier about birth control well Who's going to go into um, their doctor's office, a black woman, whether she's married, God forbid she's not married, and ask for Mm. the birth control pill? Even if she walks in and glory, they're (laughs) all over the walls or handing them out as you walk in, of course, what's (laughs) happening, (laughs) right? Right. It was happening wouldn't they be too ashamed to reach out and and take it right because of this silence that we have around sexuality and so you know sometimes you would see things depending on where you were so for example if we just go back to new york and we talk about madam cj walker's daughter who owned a place where people who were queer um, could go and could have fun okay (laughs) in New York at a specific time where um, having such fun if if you were involved in um, same-sex relationships Mm. was illegal okay yeah but dared to do what they wanted to do to follow their desires anyway and so once we go through the history and the archives we find all of these interesting people that we know Langston Hughes for example um, visited Moms Mabley visited um, people that um, had these these um, invitations Alice Dunbar Nelson for God's sakes was there this was a woman who wore hat and gloves and was part of the black club women's <laughs> movement <laughs> but we, at night is what people did at night so the kind of sneaking around 
Um, does that mean that they own their sexuality? Alice Dunbar Nelson was married three times to men, but she also had relationships with women. Did she own her sexuality? I think in private, she most certainly did. Um, because these are choices that she made and that she would continue to make as she got older. Uh, if we think about someone else that I've written about, but let's think about the blues women. Someone like Moms Mabley, you all have probably heard of Bessie Smith, if you yeah. remember the movie Bessie. Um, and other black women, uh, Memphis Minnie, for example. These blues women who would sing about their sexuality before we get to somebody like Beyonce or Cardi B or some of these other, um, Lizzo, some of these other women that we see now. Are they owning their sexuality? Well, sometimes my students and I, we debate about this. Is sexuality owned when you are getting paid for it and there's an industry that expects something from you? Or is it the woman who's in private, um, who may have relationships that, um, are, does she own her sexuality very differently than someone who profits from it? So it depends, I think, on how it's being defined, um, but there's certainly many different ways of thinking about that expression. And yes, we have come a long <laughs> way. <laughs> we certainly have, we certainly have. Expression of their sexuality, most certainly. So speaking about how far along we've come, within the last three or four decades, what has made interracial marriages more common, more popular? I suppose it depends. Uh, so black men have been writing about relationships with white women for decades, for certainly over a hundred years, because of the push of a black man who may have been in any sort of relationship or thought of being in a relationship with a white woman. So if we think about Emmett Till and what happened to him, here we have a child who's thought of as yeah. being, um, you know, too forthright with a white woman. Of course, we know that it was a lie that she told, but because that myth and that fear existed, even in popular culture, even in films, a black man, a black boy, could be killed. So how do you move forward from that? Well, we do begin to see more black women married to white men or in relationship with white um, women. And I think that that may have something to do with um, seeing people that we know in such relationships. So if we think about um, Kamala Harris, for example, if we think about um, Katanji Brown Jackson, for example. Now, her relationship is, is much older, but it wasn't necessarily public until she became public, right? So um, it's not as if these relationships have not been occurring, but I would certainly say with my generation and an increasing number of um, students, of color who are going to predominantly white institutions. Um, I can certainly see as, as someone who went to a historically black university, if somebody had a white boyfriend, you didn't bring them to our campus. Uh, <laughs> it's 
something that people didn't do. That's not to say that that people weren't in relationship. You just didn't bring them out where folks could see them. Mm-hmm. But um, that has changed. So on predominantly white campuses, it is not unusual to see a woman of color with a uh, man of color or another woman of color. Um, on that campus, and I, and I think because we have more women, black women in positions of power, we begin to rethink any sort of um, myths and, and um, hesitancies around how we perceive that. But my students have recently told me, even last year, that they still deal with their parents saying this is not okay. Mm. even though they may be in these relationships, it's not necessarily something that they want their parents to know about. Which is interesting, but I'm definitely not surprised. Um, I even have friends now who say, you know, like, oh, no, I could never date outside of my race. You know, you know, of course they have their reasons, but their reasons, you know, at times are understandable. But then I do have friends that are like, no, I want to date outside because there's no men in my race that are ready for that next step. Let's just say that. So, but yeah, but I can definitely understand or, or no, no, no. I can see as to why their parents would be on, you know, like, um, um, of course, I'm sorry, of course on the fence, um, with the interracial marriages or even dating it, you know, someone of the opposite race. So, mm. So, going back to that Washington Post article I mentioned earlier, um, I read this quote and I thought it was really interesting. So it said, between 1950 and 1995, the percentage of black women that were 14 or older who were married fell from 62% to under 38%. Meanwhile, 59% of white all white women were married, and that was down from 66%. So... In that time, in that range of time, there was a shift only by 7% for white women, but there was a shift of, what, almost like 25% <laughs> between black women and their marriages, which kind of leads us into, I guess, the the rise of the independent woman and um, just divorce being more prominent um amongst that time or you know women just not being getting married at all so um can you speak a little bit to that yeah well um you know those numbers also reflect the fact that people aren't getting married as much as people used to get married and folks are um, women are waiting longer to get married and even to have children across the board so the ways in which people think about family and work and how they want to live their lives has just changed dramatically and i think it's going to continue to change as well so um so so we have to keep that in mind But I think that we have to go back to thinking about how black women see themselves as married. And so whether they're in a same-sex relationship or in a 
um, heterosexual relationship, a woman with a man, then we also consider the fact that the majority of black women, so black women are least likely to marry outside of their race. We we didn't say that exactly, but that's what we're saying in that, in that last mm -hmm. question, that black women are least likely to marry outside of their race. And so then we have a, that means that we have a demographics challenge, right? <laughs> because there are more women than men. Um, if, if, if that's the preference is, is for a man, um, we also have then the challenge of thinking about um, whether or not marriage is, is a right thing, is if that's something that the woman is necessarily interested in. And I think that looking at statistics sometimes presumes that women are interested in getting married. And so um, black women are very diverse, I think, in our thinking and what we may want for ourselves, that also doesn't mean that she's not in relationship, that she's not coupled or partnered. Those statistics are looking at legal marriage. And if you remember when I started off, I, was, I said, how are we defining marriage, right? Um, and so there are many factors to look at when we think about that percentage. There are the challenges and there's also the redefinition and reimagining what relationships looks like for black women. That's a really good point. Um, I think of, you know, some of my friends now that are, I have several round of friends that were in committed relationships in their mid or late thirties. And for whatever reason, now they're not and so it's a matter of, you know, we could look up in 10 plus years and they could be single or not, you know, like it's not as surprising to see, I think, or for us to see black women be a certain age and not be married. Like we just expect, not expected, but it's just, it's more of our norm or it's something we're more used to. So that that that's a great way of like for context purposes contextually thinking of it absolutely absolutely um you know a few years ago when i was looking doing my research on alice dunbar nelson who was widowed from my first husband paul lawrence dunbar she as far as i we can guess she divorced her second husband we guessed that because divorce records aren't easily accessible, but both of them went on to marry. So we hope that they weren't still married when they married their, their next spouse. So we'll just say that they were divorced, but looking for records during that time, there just aren't any. Right. People did not look at whether or not black people got divorced. And many of, some of them didn't. It wasn't unusual for people to just walk off again and start another relationship. If you've read Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, that's what she did. And it wasn't bad. <laughs> that's what Janie does. And it wasn't that unusual for somebody to walk off and just um, couple, partner, with someone else and so those records become <laughs> incomplete if you will um 
So the difference may be that divorce was something that um, was not looked upon favorably, especially um, in the middle educated class. And thinking about um, W.E.B. Du Bois, the, the great scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, the civil rights leader who waited until his wife died and then he married someone that he had been having an affair with for um, quite a while, Shirley Du Bois, but while he was married to his first wife, he had many affairs with many women. You don't get a divorce, okay? So um, his only child actually did end up getting a divorce after being married for just a few months to um, to County Cullen. Yeah. Very famous story there. So it was just shied upon if you were educated and if you were middle class. People just didn't do it in polite society. White people didn't do it either in polite society. But if you were poor, if you were in a rural area, or if you were in the working class in urban areas, maybe you didn't get a divorce, but maybe you didn't get legally married either. And so um, the getting together and the separating worked very differently. So, you know, we always remember that black people have diverse experiences when it comes to thinking about these experiences and these questions. <laughs> I think back to when my mom, so my parents are got a divorce when I was younger and my mom grew up in the Catholic church and I know that pressure and how divorce is framed in that church really made her kind of conflicted to it you know yeah to an extent where it's like am I like is God gonna hate me now like am I you know like not the you know like having all these kind of feelings of being conflicted while you're dealing with this you know life shift and life change um and at the time like I said I was five so you have a little you know a child involved as well and so I can imagine um yeah none of this has been just something as easily um done or discussed in ways that we see now um but to wrap because I really feel like we could sit and chat with you for a long time and get all of these uh like dive down deeper into some of these questions but um but to wrap, why has marriage been viewed as an accomplishment or, you know, essentially turned into like a personality trait um, for some women? Well, for black women, I think it goes back to that history of being denied the right to marry and then mm -hmm. going through many years out of slavery, if you will, especially in, in the early 1900s through the 1970s, I think. So at least over 70 years when the black achievement, the achievement for black people, the ultimate achievement was family. And again, I, I, I started off by saying that, so then I get the end by saying that, that the achievement was that a woman and a man would marry and would have children and that there would be nothing that would keep that from happening. 
And so, um, again, this is why divorce would have been, would not have been encouraged because you focus on the family. And so certainly we see that that has changed since 1970, but um, when we think about marriage in our society period I you know it's and and it's not just black people sometimes I read about um, some some of the work that I really love to read is by South Asian women and the culture of arranged marriage or at least an expectation of marriage I just read watched a, a nice film on on um, prime video about this last night I think it's called the wedding seat there there are some cultures that in, in African cultures as well where um, marriage and children are expected and are wanted and welcomed and so if people aren't happy who cares <laughs> you know, that's the romantic stuff mm. but really that is the achievement and so ultimately the children that's really the achievement right <laughs> because it shows something about the virility of a man so um it can be very patriarchal mm. in yeah. some instances but in any case it, it certainly is something that um black people have been striving for over decades and and that we have been rethinking as well Perfectly said. You've given us so much to even just think about. Yeah. I mean, we're all so used to the privileges and the life we have now. So I think sometimes just thinking about what it took, what experiences people dealt with, maybe some of the emotions or just what the climate was like in those times. Just sometimes I think remembering that can give us an appreciation more of kind of where we are today. So thank you so much for, you know, sitting with us this past, you know, however long we've been together and giving us this this good download. Great. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So now we're going to move into the wedding vendor love. Ashley, who would you like to shout out this week? I actually want to shout out one of my faves from TikTok who actually has her own Etsy shop. If you are in need of any kind of illustration or like stickers, cute decor, whether it's apparel, what have you, please, please, please look up Taylor, Aaron and Taylor, actually, they will, they're getting married next month. Um, but look up Taylor on Instagram, TikTok, wherever, Etsy, and go to Shop Stylish Sista. Um, her TikTok is Stylish Sista, but her work is just amazing. Like, she is super, super talented. She can draw. She can, like, oh my gosh, just all of her stuff is just, like, it's so good. It's just so, so good. And if you want it that kind of custom feel for whether it's you're planning your wedding or you have a birthday coming up or, you know, a girl's trip, a birthday gift for somebody else, like whatever it is, like she can just do so much. So basically just go to her Etsy account, go to her Instagram, you go to her TikTok, you can see all of the work that she's done before and beyond even stickers. Like I've seen her like make her invitation sweet. She's making her menus for her wedding. She 
And it's one thing I know a lot of us are like Canva girls where, you know, quick little graphic design, whatever, but she actually knows how to like bust out Illustrator. Like you could tell she does this for a living. Like she is in this kind of creative space. Look up Taylor at Stylish Sista or Shop Stylish Sista on Instagram. But if you just want to follow her wedding journey and post-wedding journey, go to Stylish Sista on TikTok and Instagram. And of course, she's like an influencer and things like that. So you'll just you'll just love her by default. But that's who I'm shouting out this week. What about you, Tania? Who are you shouting out? Yeah, so this week I'm shouting out Shanika from Posh Event Decor. Recently, I worked a wedding and I met her through um, Cassie from Enrich Events and Designs. Um, Shanika, she is an event designer as well as florist. Um, When I tell you that her work is beautiful, she's very meticulous. You can tell that she loves what she does. She's very, very nice, very sweet, very detailed oriented. Um, I was helping her with a couple of, of her bouquets. And when I tell you, you know, she will make sure that it's right and that it's beautiful. And so definitely please reach out to Posh Event Decor. You can find her at P-O-S-H-E-V-E-N-T Decor, D-E-C-O-R. You can also find her at www.poshevendecor.com. Definitely look her up. She's great. She's awesome. She's based out of Atlanta. Um, And so again, if you're in need of a floor designer or even a freelancer, because she also does that. Um, definitely reach out to her. She's amazing. She's very, very sweet. And let her know that I do sent you. Love it. Love it. Love it. Do you have anything you'd like to plug, shout out, you want people to know about? Uh, just in terms of my own work, I do invite people to look at my website, www.drtartgreen.com. And you'll learn more about my last two books, which do deal with um, love, relationships, and women's sexuality. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. You You have a good day. So, Tania, before we wrap, where can people find us? You can find us at Wed on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. You can also find us on TikTok. Also, you can find Ashley at Demitosh on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find me at Belsori on Instagram and Twitter. And if you made it this far, thank you so much again for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, even if, say, you listen to us on Spotify. Um, it just helps uh, other brides, grooms, vendors like yourself find a podcast that speaks to people like them. So thank you again, and we'll see you next week.